Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 279. It doesn't take much. Recorded April 2nd, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroll, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson and Miles the Aussie Engineer Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the faithful Element Opiate Clan. Huzzah. And despite popular belief, we all survived April Fool's Day. We did indeed. In fact, I managed to get through the day without a single April Fool's joke. Um... Not my kids, not anybody. That was that was kind of amazing. I made. I have to complain. Um, I have to complain about um, Adult Swim tsunamis, April Fool's thing. They, you know, they played a different show than what they had on their schedule, and it was like their April Fool's prank. And I hated it because had I known they were going to play that show and not play the ones I wanted to watch, I could have just went to bed at a decent hour. (laughs) So I stayed up late to watch. A sneak peek of season three of Rick and Morty, a show I've never watched before. And, you know, I didn't get to watch my uh, Dragon Ball Super. So I was quite bummed. And I missed uh, Samurai Jack as well. So I was quite bummed about that. I tried everything in my power to avoid anything to do with April Fool's Day. Didn't watch the news, didn't listen to the radio, didn't do anything. And then decided I wanted to fix a computer and I had to look something up on the internet. And so I went to some, you know, forum, one of these like PHPBB forums or something like that. And I'm reading through these forum postings and I swear right in the middle of it, ponies and unicorns came running across my screen. April Fool's. Mm. <laughs> so, no, I didn't avoid it. I got ponies and unicorns. Well, I spent most of the day offline, which helps. It's, it's really frustrating to me that uh, news sites, internet news sites have taken this as you know something sacred to them and everybody has to post at least one fake news uh, story and sometimes even doing an entire fake homepage. you know that was fine when internet news was a lightweight thing that nobody cared about and you you watched the tv or read the paper but now the internet is the way most people get their news and they're still treating it like they're you know frat boys in in the uh, in the college quad who are just having fun but um, I mean, I've seen yesterday, I saw lots of fake stories, um, that were, you know, didn't, well, they weren't just super fake. They were, uh, things that looked, um, reasonably, uh, believable, which I guess is the heart of a good April fool's joke. Frankly, I've never gotten the whole April fool's thing, but it's really messing with the news culture, particularly, uh, among younger people who literally can't believe anything they read that day. Well, I don't know if I can believe anything I read right. anymore anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, you guys probably heard here in Atlanta there was a fire on an underpass and, and one of our two major interstates collapsed. Um, there, there are really wow. only three uh, ways, two, two routes through downtown Atlanta and one around. That's 75, 85, and 285. And one of those three things, uh, 280, uh, or 85, collapse a section of it about you know how bridges are laid out in like 100 foot sections or whatever one of those collapsed and so the entire city um is being affected by this even if that's not your route there's that crush of already heavy traffic all of those hundreds of thousands of people are now finding alternate routes every day and so it's affecting everybody it's a good thing that happened 
on Thursday, because had it happened on Saturday, nobody would have believed it, and people might actually have died trying to drive down that road thinking it was a, an April Fool's joke. Huh. What was, I mean, I, I did see that on the news. What can burn steel at that level to collapse a freeway? What's, what, what were they burning, thermite under that thing? That's the, that's the big question. In fact, that's exactly the word I use. What is that, thermite? Um, the, I've heard a couple of things, and uh, it's being investigated, but uh, one was, there was they were doing some road work, and they were storing their chemicals there to get them out of the way of, of weather. Uh, another was there was a lot of PVC pipe there and the combination of flammable PC, PVC plus the hollow tubes that caught the wind just right made it super hot. But really, the the official uh, word hasn't been released yet. But it's going to be months, maybe even a year before things are back to normal there because, you know, first you have to figure out what caused it. Then you have to figure out why the bridge collapsed. Bridges shouldn't collapse. A fire shouldn't bring down steel and concrete. And, and you know, that's what you were just saying. This had to be an extreme fire or something wrong with the road. So there's going to be months of just figuring that out, and then they're going to you know start fixing it, which, as you know, road construction is never quick. So this is going to be a big deal, um, but there are a lot of people who wouldn't have believed it <laughs> if it had been announced yesterday. Yeah, you know, one thing that obviously is impossible to melt steel um, is any type of fuel or propellant. Because a friend of mine on Facebook posted this caption that basically said, uh, you know, the government caused 9-11. Right, because and, uh, fuel couldn't do it. Yeah. Right. And so I just I just responded with a couple of common sense things. And their response to me was, well, I would have to do the research to know if what you're saying is true. But yet I will post this caption from uh, some stupid group just has fact without commentary. And then, you know, of course, people like agreed with me and other people were like, agree with. And I just like, man, there's so many things wrong with people today. We don't, you know, all of those studies and like with the bridge, it assumes perfect maintenance perfect materials with zero defects and zero construction shortcomings, which name one government project that that has ever applied to, you know? So it's just, I don't know what caused it, but I know that rarely are things perfectly made in this world. And therefore stuff that shouldn't happen in a lab happens in real life all the time. So seven minutes in, and we're not even to the first line of the show notes yet, but let's go ahead and talk about it because this dovetails with what I was talking about earlier with the fact that we now have an entire generation or uh, multiple generations, really, uh, uh, who get all of their news from the internet now. And what you just said there is um, reading anything that was on the internet makes you informed. Passing it on makes you a good internet citizen. Uh, So that guy not only felt he was informed, but felt he had done his civic duty by forwarding a meme on Facebook. This is what journalism is in the year 2017. I want to disagree with you. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I so want to tell you, Mark, you're wrong. But unfortunately, society has proved what you have said is the truth. And, you know, in... Well, we've, we've, we've talked about it a lot here. You know, you, if you're a right wing conspiracy nut, you, you think Fox news is too liberal and you go from there. And so anybody that doesn't agree with you, they're, you know, they're a commie wannabe or whatever. And so you don't know the truth. You know what your higher ups tell you to believe. 
And it's a, it's a very sad day whenever, uh, or we're a sad generation, I think in America that has turned our back on truth and resource and research and science for pseudo political babbling. Well, I, I don't think we've turned our back on research. We've just redefined what research is regurgitating something we read counts as research now yeah i didn't even know what Miles? to say to all of that <laughs> i'm i'm you know i got to the point where at one point i i thought as a scientist i guess or an engineer at least i could look at something and make some sort of factual decision and if i didn't know the uh the whole story i'd rely on what was fed to me as evidence so all the bits and pieces that made up a story and you'd come to some conclusion, right? That would be a scientific or a left brain approach to solving a problem. But you can't rely on the evidence being factual. So how do you make a decision or a, a conclusion on anything if the evidence itself is flawed? So at that point, you end up opting out and now no decision is made. Yeah. It's, it's very frustrating. So I I don't know the answer to anything. It'd be it'd be so easy if I could say, oh, you know, the answer is this or that. But no, everything's like a JFK murder thing. It's like no one can work out what the actual evidence is to come to a conclusion. Well, it and you've used the word twice now, evidence, um, and that shows uh, a line uh, a reasoned line of thinking. There, there's almost no such thing as proof. Um, very, the burden of proof is so extreme that it rarely happens. It's evidence um, in favor of or in dispute of uh, a particular theory. Um, and that mindset is just gone now. Uh, I'm not picking on evolution, but here's an example of uh, I once saw uh, a guy show some rocks uh, at a speech, and there were like seven rocks on a table, and he said this is uh, incontrovertible proof of evolution. And I didn't say anything because I didn't want to make trouble. But in my brain, I'm thinking, no, that's incontrovertible proof of rocks on a table. That's the only thing you can prove by that. It's evidence supporting a theory that has other evidence. But we, we throw the word proof around like it's a common thing. And, and you know, it, it's so much worse on the Internet. That guy saw a meme. Somebody put some text over a picture. And therefore, it is now proof. It's not even evidence. It's proof. Um, and it's I, where do we go from here? Idiocracy. Here we come. Seems that way. Seems that way. I mean, I, I don't know. If, you, if somebody shows you a photograph of a rock, what's to say they didn't doctor the photo? And it's not a rock, it's a lizard. Or it's, you know, I mean, what do you do in this digital world? You can make anything look like anything and you don't know what to believe. And, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to go out in the garden and plant some fruit or something. I mean, just okay. something Here, simple. Here's, here's what we do. We make a site on the Internet and we'll call it Believeopedia. And, any, <laughs> and anything posted on there will be accepted as gospel truth, unable to be um, challenged in any quarter of the digital society. So I think that will solve all of our problems. We'll just create a central repository of truth that anyone can create, edit, or change anything at any time, and that, and eventually there will be nothing but truth on that page. And the first, first article will state categorically that Seth Anderson is a French model. <laughs> In the chat room uh, says, the, I like his phraseology here, says people just go to the top shelf for everything. I like that. Just whatever they can get to first. That counts. 
All right. I'm going to move on from that. And one of the reasons I'm extra sensitive about um, uh, uh, April Fool's Day is it also happens to be the day of my birth. Um, I, oh, yesterday was my birthday. birthday. I turned 45 years old. So my whole life, particularly during you know uh, grade school, my day was the national day of making Mark look like a fool. Um, and so I'm super sensitive to it. But I uh, yesterday, a friend of mine, uh, as as you do, right? Uh, uh, I, t- I had two interesting messages on Facebook yesterday. Hundreds and hundreds of happy birthdays because you know Facebook tells everybody what you should do. Um, you know, tell Mark happy birthday. It's LinkedIn is even better. LinkedIn will tell you uh, somebody's having a work anniversary, and you click a button, and it actually sends the message for you. That's even better. So you get all the exact same message. But uh, you know, Facebook. Uh, one of my friends was complaining uh, this world of social social media has um, devalued people who actually remember um, who uh, who their when their friends' birthdays are. You know, because this guy called me every year on my birthday for years uh, prior to Facebook. Um, and, and now he's kind of mad because everybody gets on the bandwagon and the few people who actually remembered my birthday don't get any credit anymore. Um, but anyway, uh, that, that, that I found that was interesting, but the, the one I want to talk about was a friend of mine said, I hope your daughters are treating you like a King on your birthday. And I thought, well, let's see, they frequently request, uh, grants of financial gain and, uh, property. And they usually look to me to settle disputes. So yeah, absolutely. They treat me like a King every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I went to your page. I was going to post, but you've turned off the ability of people to post on your page. That is so correct. I just like, I just like, well, forget it. I'm not going to wish you my happy birthday. You then. can you can tag me in a message on yours. You can send me a message directly, but my wall is my wall. Nobody writes on it but me. I there is a particular person for whom that rule went into place, but I won't mention it here on the show. Yeah. I make it so I have to approve everything, but I give people, and I have rejected stuff from time to time, but you know, I give people the chance. Back in the old days when caller ID was a feature that you had to pay for, there was a particular person for whom I bought caller ID too. Um, <laughs> not the same person, uh, but anyway, the, the, there are things in my life where there may be one person that triggers it. Um, anyway. Uh, all right, moving on. Seth, you put nothing in the warm. You have nothing to say. Uh, no, not really. Wow. I'm not feeling well. So I've got like this head thing happening. And so I sound more nasally and whinily than normal today. So I feel blah. I think, it's, I think that's mostly in your head. I don't mean in your imagination, but literally in your own head. Cause you sound fairly normal to me. Yeah. Really? Good to me. Yeah. yeah. Cause it, it sounds it sounds different. Well, and of course, you know, you hear yourself differently than right. other people do, but, uh, and it sounds very different to me, and it sounds distant, so I'm very congested and stopped yeah. up. And then you take medicine, you get that floaty head feeling where you feel like everything is happening 100 miles from you. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, Miles is going to talk about something that we will be revisiting. This is like my LED lighting project. He's doing it, and we're going to make show fodder out of it, whether it should be or not. But, Miles, right. go. It should be show fodder. Um, <clears throat> we all, all geeks have to have a NAS. It's, it's the law, right? Well, I think it is. In a, a NAS, for those that uh, don't follow acronyms, is a network attached storage uh, device or server or basically big disk storage in your house because all of our stuff is digital and we want to store it. Otherwise, you end up streaming everything from Netflix. And that, that works to some degree, but... I don't know any self 
self-proclaimed geek who doesn't store a collection of their favorite stuff. And it used to be, well, Mark, you have like a big DVD collection that you converted to disc. Yeah. My, my, mine is sort of a, a, a nano. It's a NAS in name only. Um, it is a 1.5 terabyte hard drive connected directly to my router. But technically, that's network attack storage, so that counts. Yeah, yeah, that is. Seth, do you have the same? You've got like a collection of stuff you store in, at home? I um, I do, but I keep it in a hard drive not attached to anything. So ah. well, what I did was... Um, so that's, many- that's a NAS as in non-attached storage. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, that works too. Um, yeah, well, when, when I was... Uh, Many moons ago, when I was moving from Australia to the United States, I had to make everything digital because you can't literally put it on a container ship and ship it all the time. You want to make everything as portable as possible. Uh, And that included all my music collection, all my movies, everything, even scans of all documents, the whole bit. And um, that started me off on storing everything digital. So ever since then, I've always had a big server with a lot of hard disk. And it started out, you know, just a couple of terabytes. I mean, I'm sure back in the early days, it wasn't terabytes. It was probably gigabytes or even megabytes. But it's grown uh, to the point where I got this little nasty email from one of my little bots that I have on my server that looks at disk available space telling me, of your 16 terabyte NAS, you got 95% used. Like how do you, how do you use ninety five percent of sixteen terabytes? Well, apparently it's a thing you can. You're a digital and I hoarder. Did. I did. I must be. Yeah. So I now have to venture down the path of uh, well, what do I do? Upgrade the NAS? Well, of course, you know I built this thing many moons ago when motherboards didn't allow you to see more than two terabytes per disk drive and. And then I put cards in there to allow more drives and more and more drives. And now I've got this thing that's probably taking more power away than most Bitcoin farms to store 16 terabytes of two terabyte drives, which are now so old, you know, and just not 2017, right? I mean, Seagate's Seagate's got a 10 terabyte drive for 350 bucks. I mean, you know, there's no excuse. That plus a Raspberry Pi done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what self, you know, I'm trying to be a self-professed geek and I, and I'm not, handling 50 terabytes of storage in my house come on i'm falling behind we got to get it up here so that's become my my project build the whole thing from scratch new drives new storage 50 terabytes job done so that that was it i just wanted to introduce the concept the challenge is on uh and i'm gonna do do this and document it and so assuming you're going to do some sort of raid uh, to get that 50 terabytes, you're going to have to buy 60 to 80 terabytes. Um, I'll do ZFS, but I'll, I'll get into the technical okay. details in the... in the. So you're going to uh, trust the, the file system to raid for you? I'm going to trust soft, yeah, soft raid effectively, okay. like a journaled thing. Um, See, I, I, I'm a hardware guy uh, at heart. I would always rather stripe across multiple disks than trust the software. Again, you're still trusting so- software, right? But I'd rather yeah. have the hardware embedded in uh, software embedded in hardware. Um, that's yeah, just the, the, way the I only like to go. The, the problem I've, I've done that before, but the problem is that typically when you when you hold storage over a long period of time, like you know maybe five years or so, the drives that you started out with in year one are no longer 
the drives you want to be putting in the thing in year five. True. Because everything got bigger, right? And hardware RAID requires all the drives to be the same drives. I mean, they have to be equally uh, uh, implemented across the, across the controller. And the problem often is, and I've been bitten by this before, I don't know if you have, you go and buy drives that at the time were the drive to buy. Maybe it was like a 250 gigabyte drive back then. And five years later, you, you know, a drive dies and you've got to replace it and you go to find a 250 gigabyte. They don't sell them anymore. True. Been there. Yes. Yeah. And now your whole NAS is down, is down the drain. So well, you know, I want to future okay. proof this. What a lot of drives, a lot of RAID devices and RAID levels, you can have larger drives in there but like so if you have three 250s and one 500 half of that 500 isn't being used but then as you replace your drives once you get them all up to 500 then you can recognize that additional space so that's a way to do some future proof yeah i i found a product a while back called unraid which was right. a, a, originally an open source project, but then it became kind of you could have to buy it if you got to a certain capacities. And, I, and I've been using that for quite some time, and it's been really good because it does allow you to uh, grow your uh, array by just having your parity drive bigger than any other drive. Right. Um, That's like a JBOD with striping um, to get super yeah. technical. Yeah. Yeah. And we will definitely talk more about this later. Um, yeah. So, I was, so there's a lot of options. I was showing off one time at my data center uh, years ago. Um, we were doing a, a a dog and pony show for interested people walking through, and so I took them in the server room, and we, I was talking about uh, I had RAID 6 set up. So in a RAID 6 environment, you can lose any two drives without the having any problems with the system. Um, and so I was uh, um, demonstrating the fact that I could pop a hot swappable drive out, and the system would keep going. So I popped a drive out, and everything crashed. It turned out I already had a failed drive I didn't know about, and when I pulled that one out, the whole thing came crashing down. <laughs> Oops. Uh, fortunately, I had picked a non-critical uh, system. I think it was a, uh, a pre-production that I hadn't even put anything important on yet. But um, I learned there, you know, oops, <laughs> don't demonstrate live unless you're sure you've got healthy drives all around. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think, I think this is something we can talk to our our own personal storage experiences in our house. Cause I'm sure everybody who listens to this show in one way or another has to store their stuff right. somewhere and the cloud is okay, but probably not, you know, for your big DVD collection. It's been something I've been wanting to do ever since I moved into this house. I've got, you know, I've got this gig backbone. Um, I could easily upgrade that to 10 gig over the copper I've got. Uh, uh cause I ran cat six everywhere. Um, and I've been thinking of putting in uh, like maybe an eSATA or a NAS and just having a big chunk of drives down there to throw, you know, everything, have all the laptops, all the desktops, all the phones sync up to it automatically on a schedule, just never lose anything again. And then, you know, to be super paranoid, um, send you a copy of that in Arizona and have, and uh, we sync it up over our, our networks uh, periodically. That That would be the super paranoid way to do it. Um, you would never, you wouldn't want to do the initial sync over the internet because that would be ridiculous. But uh, keeping it up with it would be easy. So those are the sort of things I've always talked about doing, but never actually done. So maybe you can spur me onto that. All right, cool. And then you wanted to talk about podcast players. 
Yeah, I, I just thought that as a follow-on from last week's episode where we talked all about the podcast we listened to, the one thing we, we didn't touch upon was how we listened to it and the kind of the physical side of listening to podcasts. Um, there were two things that were part of that that came to mind. One was, you know, the device you listen to it on and maybe the software aggregator that you use to pull down the, the shows and then present them and listen to them, but also like where we listen to them because – you know, whether it's is it a, a travel commute to work in your car, I mean, the average commute of a, somebody in the United States apparently is like 40 minutes. So there's plenty of opportunity to listen to podcasts there. Or is it, you know, on the treadmill at the gym, which is what I tend to do a lot. And um, or is it just, you know, as background material at work? And is podcast background material? Is it possible? It can be. I don't know. I mean, this is, I sort of wanted to throw it out there and find out what you guys, you know, what, what are your habits about that? Well, for me, uh, for the last uh, probably six or seven years, my phone, whatever the phone is at the time, has been my primary podcast. I used to, a uh, podcatcher, I used to listen over the, the phone, over the computer, because uh, I had a, a much more desk job. Uh, where I didn't move around much, but now it's, it's been the phone for years. I use the Castback app uh, that uh, um, I would really like to see more people using and actually using the commenta- commenting function on it. But I've talked about that a ton. Um, but for me, uh, drive time is audiobook time, and at the desk or at the office or uh, you know uh, in between meetings or sitting on the can, you know wherever I am is podcast listen time. And uh, most of the time, depending on what I'm listening to, I can, um, you know, multi-thread. The human brain doesn't actually multitask. I can multi-thread enough to listen to a podcast while doing my work. But if I'm generating words from writing an email uh, or something like that, I can't. I can't take in and generate effectively. So I pause it and do that. But for me, uh, and I listen at three x speed. So uh, you know, in a in a in an eight hour day at work, uh, six hours of that is uh you know usable podcast time and i'm listening to to uh 18 hours of podcasts a day um and then between the the one to three hour commute depending on traffic every day is my audiobook time that's how i do it seth um i use my phone mostly uh podcast addict is the um podcatcher i use and a lot of times I do it while I'm walking around my driveway for exercise. Um, if I have some of my 30 minute podcasts, I can squeeze those in, in the trip to like Canton because I listen at 2.4 speed. Um, I just made the jump up to 2.4 and you know, sometimes I listen in and around the house. Um, but anyway, that's what I do. So my phone and then, um, just whenever I can squeeze one in, cause I don't like to pause and come back to it. I like to fin- yeah, Of course, you know, sometimes, you know, like some stuff happens and you have to pause, but I like to try to listen to a podcast from start to finish, whether it's the short little, uh, brain stuff or, you know, some of those Bitcoin ones, they take almost 30 minutes at the speed I listen to. Yeah, see, I, I never have had any trouble with pausing and, and restarting. In fact, my uh, every night when doing my bedtime routine, I'm listening to my audio book. I'll, I'll I'll have my thing going while I'm brushing my teeth or whatever, and I'm, and I'm getting in bed. And and um, then when it's time to turn the lights off, I just reach over and push pause. And sometimes it'll be in the middle of a sentence or even in the middle of a word. And my wife is like, "How can you do that?" 
uh, I don't know. I just remember where I was the next day. I've never had any trouble pushing pause on the DVR in my brain like that. I can't. I just don't like to because, you know, I'm the kind of person who I'll start reading the book at eight o'clock and stay up till two or three in the morning to finish it because it's like, I want to finish this. And, you know, if I'm reading the book, sometimes I can stop at a chapter, but when I'm listening to something, I want to listen all the way through. And that's more when, you know, I can stop it and come back in a day because, oh, I forgot I was listening to that when I listen to these others and it's not a big deal. It's more of a personal preference. Right. Miles, mm-hmm. your own question. Oh. Well, yeah, I mean, I like most of my podcast listening is in the car, um, and it's in the car or it's at the gym, and the car, my car has not got the best of audio players that I would like, but uh, it didn't really matter. I ended up uh, finding a project years ago, I think it's on GitHub now, called PodGet, and it's actually a big Linux Bash script library. And what it does is it pulls down your uh, feeds and it pulls them into a, a system and then just puts them on a server for you. And then I literally just copy the audio over to the device that I'm listening to it on and I go from there. And I, and I get into a habit where I do this once a week. So I, I'm usually a week behind the show. So if I say on a Wednesday I might load up for the week, then I'll have everything from that Wednesday back seven days and that's what I'm what I'm listening to. But the main reason I did that was that I was finding um, podcast. I mean, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little. This is a bit of praise for Mark. The audio quality of Geek Rant and EDL before when I was a listener is above and beyond better than probably everything that's not professionally that is for money produced out there in podcast land. Now, I know I'm going to get hate mail from people who are so proud about their audio quality, but the reality is when you're listening to a very large number of them, some of them are shocking in audio quality. And the worst thing, if you've ever been on a treadmill at a gym, is when somebody has two people on a podcast and they pan one host hard left and one host hard right and it almost throws you off the treadmill because when one's talking and the other's not, you're leaning to one side and then when they come back, you're leaning to the other side. It's nuts. So I I mean, look, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was an audio engineer once. I get a little bit sort of sensitive to audio quality. So what I did was I got PodGet to grab the audio down and then I take the file before it actually writes the thing to disk and I haul it into FFmpeg and I'll (laughs) boost it and I'll normalize it and I'll compress it and then I'll turn it to mono and then I'll store it and then it's ready for me to go. So I kind of have my own robotic butler before I listen to anything. So that's me. But yeah, the the (laughs) ones that get me, um, I don't listen to a podcast that's by an audio audio like that. And you hard pan, I'm done. I'm out. I won't finish the episode. Um, I do pan on this show, but it's a 10% pan. It's just enough to give a sense of a conversation going on around you. Uh, but yeah, it's not a hard pan most of the time. It's, uh, they recorded on the left track of the recorder and the right track of their recorder and, uh, they didn't equalize it, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so I have cut interesting podcasts with bad audio, uh, you know, like ruthless. Uh, but some of the shows I listen to feature heavy call-ins and, uh, you can't, you, you never gonna, are going to get good quality on a phone call, and then you can't control the audio that you get. And so those are the ones that I often end up having to slow down. I can't listen to a call-in show at 3X um, or, or something like that. Uh, but I, I've, 
I've never gone so far as to to preach triage all of my podcasts like that. That's a good idea. I may have to start doing that. <laughs> I did. Well, podcasts up on GitHub. If anyone wants yeah. it, you can download it for free and butcher yeah. it to your heart's degree. And Miles, what you could do to to uh, uh, avoid having to do that sync step is just ge- generate an RSS feed from those and then subscribe to your own RSS feed, and you'd always have it all the time up to date. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, I could definitely do that. I, I just find I, I'm okay doing it a week at a time because as long as I've got a big swag of stuff to listen to. When I say I, I, I listen to it in the car, I, I don't drive much because I work from home. But when I do drive, it's like across state lines. I drive for six to eight hours at a time. So I'm the sort of guy who likes to just load up everything right. and then hit the road. And it, and that's kind of most important. And it's really hard when you're on the road dealing with a phone as an interface for this. So I try and put everything into my car media player and deal with it. there. Nice. All right. Uh, that was that was good. I like that. Um, listeners, if you've got an interesting setup you'd like to share, let us know. Uh, and so let's move on to some, some listener feedback. Drew fi- finds, finds an Easter egg in Legion. Um, I don't think this is a spoiler. I'm super sensitive about spoilers, and I'm, I'm going to choose to read this. But if you are even more sensitive about spoilers than I am, and you've not seen episode one of Legion, uh, you might want to skip forward about a minute and a half or so. Drew says, I just started watching episode one, and a clue that some may not have picked up on, um, and it may not be relevant, uh, but just a flavor thrown in, the blonde girl, Sydney Barrett, uh, the music that is played during the time frame uh, can be categorized as psychedelic rock. The band Pink Floyd have a former member who left the band after their first album due to a nervous breakdown. His name, Sid Barrett. And the song uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond was written in his honor. So that just goes to show you how deep the writing is on this. They named the character, uh, maybe may uh, or may not have been related to uh, Pink Floyd, but because they had a character by that name, they went and got a bed of a song written for a guy with the same name just to play it in the background for 30 seconds. That's deep writing. It, it is. I noticed that. I thought on episode one, okay, they're in an insane asylum and there's somebody in there called Sid Barrett. Hello. <laughs> I mean, that's the, if anybody who knows classic rock, you know, historia, history would know about that story because there would not be a Pink Floyd if it wasn't for him, Sid Barrett. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I, I noticed it and then I forgot about it, but I'm so happy that he brought that back up. Uh, I don't, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. Watched episode eight this week. Um, still going strong. Um, this one was the first one I could say was predictable. Uh, so far, there has not been a single moment where I have said, oh, I saw that coming, until episode eight. Um, about halfway through, I predicted the the big ending. Um, so maybe maybe they're just giving us a break <laughs> and, and, and sort of coming into a plateau for a little while. Uh, but so far, I'm really, really enjoying the show just from a, a, a filmmaking perspective. Not, not necessarily the the whole mutant thing not the storyline the storyline's good but the craft of it is just stellar so i'll leave it at that and scott writes in to share some of his podcasts says mark you're asking us to send you our favorite podcast forced hard decisions i subscribed to more than five so that i had to pick and choose which episodes to listen to i was going to add some probably of little interest to geek rant listeners but that wouldn't be fair i think we're a pretty diverse mob 
First, of course, is Geek Rant. I've listened since EDL days and eagerly await each cast. I all listened to four that you named, A Moment of Silence, Grammar Girl, The Way I Heard It, and Myths and Legends. Thank you, Mark, for mentioning myths. I was unaware of it until you did. Five uh, podcast, oh, and then goes on, the five podcasts that Geek Rant listeners might enjoy, uh, Away With Words, uh, a call-in slash email show where listeners ask about the derivation of words and phrases. Bad Voltage, three guys get together and talk about whatever's on their minds, sometimes tech, sometimes not. Who'd be interested in that? Cosmic Vertigo, two astronomers talk about space stuff, an Australian ABC radio network podcast. Incomparable radio theater, like uh, old time. I remember a time before TV, radio, uh, before TV radio, but with uh, a twist. They may be dying off. There hasn't been a new episode since January, and before that, July 2016. But there's still older episodes available, and they're, uh, if they're moribund, I'll be sorry to see them go. Writing the above has spurred me on to making a small monthly donation. I'll be sorry to see them go. Put your money where your mouth is. And finally, Skeptoid takes a look at pseudoscience. Regards, Scott in Emeryville, California. Uh, I haven't heard of any of those, so I will be checking that out. They do sound good. I, I love this. Uh, podcasting is is so broad and so varied. Um, I just love the fact that there's great stuff out there that I haven't heard of. And then Lord Gigabyte submits his homework. Says, hi guys, just finished listening to the latest episode of Geek Rant and submitting my homework. My number one podcast uh, to be, tinfoil hat warning, is the No Agenda Show, a deconstruction of media, a collection of conspiracy theories. That's for you to decide. Second, Unfilter. This is also a podcast from Jupiter Broadcasting. Hello, Miles. Unfilter fishes in the same pond as the No Agenda Show, but as a somewhat different take on events. But there are a lot of similarities. Third, the Linux Action Show, the last episode coming up and is being replaced with User Error user error, and Ask Noah. Fourth, Linux Unplugged. Miles had told us about this one already. And fifth, Late Night Linux, a British podcast, the successor to Linux Luddites. As the name says, it's a bunch of geeks talking about Linux. Again, some of the hosts of the show are often found on the panel of Linux Unplugged. Popey is a regular customer. Keep up the good work, guys. So lots of Jupiter Broadcasting in that one. Mm. Lots of Linux. Yeah, a lot of Linux. And that's how we came to this show. We baited and switched. We told you we were going to talk about Linux, and then we didn't. <laughs> well, we did for a couple of years. I mean, we moved on. I now subscribe to A Way With Words that looks like something that is right up my alley. And uh, I'll be posting the links to these uh, with the show notes to this one. You can find those at elementopi.com. Uh, so you don't have to crash your car um, trying to write these down. Uh, but most of these, uh, most podcatchers now, you can just search for, you know, the away with words or bad voltage and, and find it. Well, you have to be careful because there's a way with words and then there's a way with words. Oh, so okay. there's two separate podcasts. You so want that's the, a mime podcast away with words. Uh, no, it's uh, I don't know what it is, but it wasn't the one he was talking about. So it wasn't I, by Marcel Marceau. No. Right. Okay. Uh, all right. And, and this, uh, we because we have to keep Seth interested, uh, he will leave us if we don't do these periodically. This is a news show. Um, and so here we go. And because this is Seth's forte, we'll start with something submitted by uh, Miles. Because <laughs> 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 it affects him personally. Uh, Miles, take it away. Oh, they, 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 they stopped Uber in, my, in Tempe. So I, uh, if anybody has remembered from a couple of shows back, 
I had mentioned the, my surprise of turning up at a, a traffic light and next to me was a driverless car that they were trialling Uber in Tempe. Well, a week or two ago, uh, they had a big road accident. Funny thing is, wasn't the driverless car that caused it some idiot T-boned a driverless car at an intersection and Uber basically got scared with all of the legals on it, I guess, and uh, decided, well, we're going to suspend that program. So no more Uberless driver program in Tempe, Arizona. Sorry about that. That's just a of you know a matter of time. Uber's gotten some pretty bad press lately, and and I'm sure they felt they couldn't um, couldn't take the further hit on this one. But uh, driverless cars are the wave of the future, and Uber has uh, a greater uh, amount of skin in the game than other people because they pay their drivers and they want to not pay their drivers. Yeah, I bet you they don't lower the prices though. Well, that's an interesting point. Does it? Is it worth less because a computer drove you there? Well, the only reason they're doing it is to save money. So if there are less expenses involved in the product, they, I'm sure they're not going to reduce the prices. Well, of course not. That the uh, any corporation's first goal, their their chief responsibility is to make money for the company. That's what corporations do. Uh, um, could they undercut other people? Maybe, but uh, in the world of taxis, uh, you could actually get in trouble for charging too little. It's such a cutthroat environment. I think the thing that really was remarkable to me um, is the social response to this, because when they had this accident, so many people that I know had said, oh, well, yeah, that's, you know, I'd never get into one of the cars and, you know, it doesn't surprise me, you know, these things that's before their time and, you know, and I'm, I'm listening to it going, man, that sounds like people talking about CD audio in 1983. Mm. You know, it's like we've got to move forward with something and the fact is that the Uber didn't cause the accident. A human being T-boned it and kicked it over on its side. And there were but no the- serious injuries. No, but the press on the front page of all the newspapers, there's a photo of the Uber car on its side on the road with, you know, the headlines like, uh, not safe to be in an Uber in Tempe. And that drives me nuts because the Uber, it's the human that was the unsafe factor, not the Uber. It's just the Uber was, the in this particular case, the innocent victim. But it's as you were saying when we first started the show, Mark, it's how people take journalism and spin and turn it to a predefined goal and you know it's like it's like a luddite mentality out there and i'm not saying that we all have to run crazily into new technology before we think it through but this was a perfect example of how the press just just had it out for uber and uber basically threw their arms up in the air and said okay enough we'll give up on this so i don't know it's kind of sad in a way Sad and predictable and expected, uh, but it'll it'll come back. The, there's too much upside to it. Um, I, just yeah, plain I hope and simple. So. Yeah, the robots will run your world. There, this is an unavoidable fact of life. It will happen uh, because automation has been the goal of of engineers for centuries. I mean, we we just now have computers, but before computers, there were you know. Uh, the McCormick Reaper and, you know, the, the, um, 
uh, spinning wheels and the looms, you know, you can go back hundreds of years and see that somebody was mad about a machine putting them out of work. Uh, and it hasn't stopped it. It's not going to stop it. It's going to continue to happen because we as humans are, are driven to, to make the world faster and better. Um, we can't turn that off. If we did turn that off, what a, what a terrible society, uh, uh humans would devolve into. If we had no creativity and no desire to invent. So it's going to happen. You might as well just accept it, people. Hmm. And, you know, people, I've said this many times, nobody, nobody misses the, the gas lamp lighter. That was a job. That was all they did. Those people found other work. Uh, it, they just do. Um, anyway, moving on. Uh, Airbus, the plane people, mm-hmm. want to make a car, but it's not really a car. It's kind of a flying thing sort of but not really (laughs) yeah i mean airbus have always been kind of on the bleeding edge of transport because the original airbus planes i remember when they were released out of france um geez that's going back a while probably 20 30 40 years ago maybe that they had a lot of accidents a lot of planes crashed because pilots were not used to computers controlling pretty much everything about the plane and I know for a fact that back in those days when I was flying, if I could, if I saw that the airline I had a ticket for was going to put me on an Airbus, I didn't want to be on that plane. And it wasn't because there was nothing wrong, there was anything wrong with the technology. It's because the human beings could not control the plane, particularly in, in forms of ascent, like emergency level ascent. They didn't understand that a computer was not going to respond to them immediately pulling back and then go straight up, it was going to ease them in so they didn't stall. And, uh, of course, that caused uh, some accidents. Well, nowadays, pilots know these things. Planes are different. But it seems that Airbus have always been pushing the envelope. The the A380 was the largest plane in the world at some point, a passenger plane. Um, I'm not sure if it still is, but it it certainly was when it was released. And they managed to pull that off, and those planes apparently are a joy to fly in. Well, now Airbus have set their sights on the individual human transport module. And uh, what they've effectively done is they've created like a little electric car and you drive it. And when you park, if you want to, well, what will happen is a massive drone comes out of the sky, hovers down above the pod or the, the, uh, I guess, the passenger compartment of the car, picks it up like from above, and lifts it into the drone away from the chassis and the wheels, leaving the chassis and the wheels on the ground, and then flies you wherever you go. (laughs) And then the chassis then drives to the next location where somebody needs to land in a drone. It's a a brilliant idea. Yeah, but this is Jetsons, right? I mean, this is really Jetsons stuff. But i got to give Airbus props. That's really thinking outside of the box. <laughs> and this, you know, this is a concept. The The finished product won't look anything like this, and it'll be a generation away, but that's okay. I, I, people are dreaming big, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, I mean, like Elon Musk's dropping rockets out of the sky and landing them for re- reuse. I mean, who'd have thought that was going to happen, right? Uh, nothing surprises me anymore. It's it's all crazy and it's all great. You know, the the concept of the commute is going to change dramatically, I think, in my lifetime uh, between, uh, you know, these hybrid 
vehicles between uh, and autonomous uh, drones and the Hyperloop and all those sort of things. Uh, we're going to stop being a culture of commuters, uh, and I think it'll happen in my lifetime. Some ways, I sort of hope so. I mean, there's way too much gridlock out there. We're going to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, we were just, you just said the average commute is 40 minutes. Mine typically is about 40 minutes. On a bad day, it can be as much as uh, three hours uh, to go 18 miles. Um, the, there's, there's no excuse for that in 2017. There are better ways around it. Um, but, you know, the, the just things have to happen first. We have this embedded 100 plus year old culture of large engines uh, on large cars that burn dead dinosaurs. And there has to be a cultural shift before you can get away from it. And it'll happen eventually. Yeah. Um, Okay, look, I'll throw it out there because this probably would have been a better thing than the Walmart, but I'll add it to this because you just mentioned about energy. Um, This week, uh, and, you know, the news that I didn't watch, and I've been trying not to watch on April Fool's Day, well, prior to that, this week there was this big announcement coming out of uh, Washington on uh, the concept of uh, revitalizing the coal industry. Um, I found out only 16% of power in the United States is generated from coal. So what's that all about? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, are we, are we just, it's technology now at odds with policy? I don't know. Well, okay. So 16% is generated by coal because, you know, think of how much, like solar and wind and other things have come. But if you were to cut off 16% of the American energy supply, it would be chaos. So, you know, 16% is not as large a number as it used to be, but that is still a number that would devastate the American economy. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, There's no doubt that it has an effect. What I think is there was a certain level of inertia moving towards uh, renewable energies that were not necessarily at odds with having available cheap power, but we were getting to the point economically where it was becoming extremely cheap to go into that area. And I don't know, I just sort of sense that that inertia, I don't know if you can stop that once it starts. So, and Miles, is your, is your complaint that 16 is too much or too little? Too, it's too little to have as much focus on it that it's getting in, in policy. It well, it's considered easier. the dirty fuel. I don't think I don't think that's appropriate. But that is the mindset in in certainly policymakers is that that uh, coal is the dirty fuel. It kill it kills people and damages the landscape. And so it's it has had a political target on its back for a long time. Yeah. No, I, I hear you on that. I'm not a I'm not looking at it as a political thing. I'm looking at it as an economic and a technology thing well since when has that ever mattered to politicians they're (laughs) the people stifling it uh i mean if if the epa and other uh regulations went away coal would skyrocket because it is cheap and it's we still have a a a huge abundance of it um and it's uh you know we still haven't even um tapped the easy to get to stuff and then once we get rid of the easy to get to stuff there's a lot of hard to get to stuff out there but it could be economically feasible but all of the everything that's driving that and 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 uh holding that up is political not technological yeah and certainly not economical do you well, think that's the that, same? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Seth. I was going to say that's the same thing that with ethanol. You know, on 
in theory, ethanol sounds great. We're going to lessen our dependence on oil and we're going to use corn uh, to fuel it, to fuel our vehicles, except when you realize that it takes more energy to produce ethanol than ethanol produces when it is burned. And then two, it damages motors because of the temperature that it burns at versus regular fuel. So the only thing that helps the, uh, the only thing that ethanol helps is it helps the farmers because it makes food more expensive because land that used to grow food now grows fuel. And the lobbyists help the politicians with their reelection campaigns because we know that's all that money is used for in order to get something that sounds on the surface very environmentally friendly. But when you look underneath, it's really not environmentally friendly. It's just the buzzword that people latched onto. Yeah, and you, you can't walk into your local Ford dealership and buy that car with ethanol. So it's it's not even a it's not even a thing. Yeah, they're it's, flex it's, fuel vehicles, but that's it. Right. Yeah. And you know, and if if you were someone who has any type of lawnmower, even if it's the big zero turn radius thing or a weed eater or a chainsaw, which I understand you shouldn't use fuel to, you shouldn't use wood to heat your home living out in the country, surrounded by trees, you're killing the whole freaking planet. But if you put ethanol based fuel in there, you're destroying those engines, which is good for the manufacturer because you blow that engine up. You got to go buy a new one. But again, it reams the consumer. That's all it does is it reams the consumer for more money. So, you know, uh, I really. This is not always a bad thing. I railed against compact fluorescent lights because they were more expensive and they didn't work. And it was the government pushing it down our throats. And now I have the best lighting I've ever had, not from compact fluorescents, but from LEDs. Uh, They last forever. They put out better light um, and they're cheaper to run. That wouldn't have happened had it not been for the tree huggers meddling where they didn't belong. It took almost 20 years to get there, but, you know, and, and so good can come from meddling. Well, okay. There's a difference from saying, get rid of this bad thing versus we're cramming this other thing down your throat. Well, that's exactly and, what they did with the compact fluorescence. Everybody was happy with their regular light bulbs. It wasn't a bad thing, but it became illegal to sell them. And, and now you had to take this light that took a long time to warm up and didn't produce good light, uh, but the EPA liked it, and so we had it. So it's, I, I, I see those as exact parallels. The, uh, the alternative right now is worse than the good thing, but we can't have the better thing until we get rid of the good thing. Yeah. And I, I don't agree that government, you know, I'm a small government liberal. I, I mean, a conservative liberal. I'm a small government <laughs> conservative. I don't think that the government's position is to tell me what light bulb I, I should have. But I can't argue that sometimes good comes from that. Yeah, even a blind dog can find a bone. So That's true. That doesn't mean that they should be out there screwing up the yard digging. And the blind dogs in the Arizona Senate followed the uh, House and and made blockchain contracts legal in Georgia. The only thing left now is to be signed by the governor. This is huger than you think it is. Yeah, I, I didn't. This is crazy. We spoke about this one a few shows back because it went in the House and they voted it and everyone was like, wait, what? Uh, huh? In Arizona, they actually voted for that. Yeah, and then... And then it was supposed to then progress to the Senate, because that's how laws work here. I'm sure it works the same way everywhere else. It originated in the House. It goes to the Senate. If it passes that, it ends up on the governor's desk, and as long as it's not vetoed, it gets signed into law. 
Well, it wasn't supposed to get to the Senate because after it passed the House, there was this thing in in the press here saying it doesn't have anything on there in regards to gun ownership. They specifically wanted to exclude on smart contracts that you are not allowed to show who owns a firearm in a smart contract. And that apparently was strong enough uh, to shut the whole thing down. And we thought, oh, okay, that was the end of that. It was, you know, it was, it, it was never going to happen, right? We were all sort of fooling ourselves thinking that, that Arizona was actually going to pass it. The Senate voted only one disdained vote. Everybody voted for it. It passed the Senate last week, and it's sitting on our governor's desk, and he's a business guy. He's going to sign this thing. This is now about to become law. And I was reading um, about this, that there are two or three other states sitting right on the heels of this. I think Vermont and Hawaii are about to follow suit and do the same thing in their jurisdictions as well. Um, This could be huge. Because I was talking with the guy who installs our – we had a new air conditioner replaced here at the house this week, and I was talking to him about it. And he was saying that this is one of those situations where government has given up the power of government in terms of databases. Because you put something out in the public ledger, that's the transparency we've been wanting for so long, and they're actually doing it then it doesn't need to be a county recorder's office anymore. The county recorder's office is the blockchain. So this is going to take me some – I have to think this through. This is freaking me out. (laughs) I didn't think it was ever going to happen. I thought, oh, it would be great if it ever happens. It's happening. And I think ostensibly it's a good thing, but it's going to cause some unforeseen ramifications for sure because this went – this was too easy. Um, and there's such a small percentage of the people who understand it. Um, and I, my worry is that, um, the first time something bad happens, it will be the end of all blockchain contracts. And, yeah. and that's my concern. Uh, you, you're right. You know, what's going to happen. They're going to put your vehicle registration in the public blockchain, right? And then immediately you're going to get spammed with every after war- aftermarket warranty company or windshield replacement company or tire company trying to sell you stuff because they now know that you just bought, you know, re-registered your car or whatever. But you already do that because however you chose to prove to the dealership you are a person, the your dealership turns around and just squeezes that bit of personal information for all they can. And I mean, you, before you get home with the car, you've got email messages, stuff already in the mail addressed to you about how that warranty was awful. And Hey, if you'll trade that vehicle in, I mean, you're like, dude, I haven't even peeled the plastic off yet. And <laughs> so, I mean, in that's not going to change. And the you know, county the only- office sells your information too, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. True. So, I mean, the only thing that's going to change there is now those companies won't have to buy it from the dealership. They'll just have to uh, buy a program that reads it off the blockchain. I'm I'm super excited to see what this, this happens, but I'm afraid that it's going to be like prohibition, right? It's going to be one of those things where it seemed like a good idea at the time and then immediately it gets repealed because everybody realized, oh, this was terrible. Um, and while I think it's... Uh, 
the technology is sound, I don't think that we have enough understanding of it as a culture to use it effectively yet. Mm. The, yeah, there's got to be two sides to the to transparency. You know, it's it's good if you don't like to be. You know, if you don't, it's good if you if you want to be open. It's bad if you don't like being exposed. Mm. And so here, got to okay, some here's the thing: you have sold, you have purchased a car, and let's say you use a web based wallet system for whatever. And then what happens whenever your account gets hacked and they sell your car to somebody else? Now there's legal proof that you don't own the car anymore. So how do you address when something like that happens? Uh, That's a good question. You know, the one thing that I always thought was maybe a motivator on government side for giving this stuff up was they're scared to death about getting hacked. Yes. They don't want to have their databases being hacked by the Russians or whoever it is, and and they have to be politically responsible for that. This is a way they can avoid all responsibility and go, it's out there in the public blockchain. We, we can't control it. Okay. <laughs> Fine. This, you know, maybe that is the downside of it. But So you think this is a case of plausible deniability? Yeah. I do, actually. Hmm. We've had police departments, you know, with uh, police, uh, the names, the addresses, the home phone numbers of police officers that somehow got out into the public because of hacks. Uh, You know, you've got, well, there's so many. I mean, historically, there's so many of these, and they all seem to make government a focus of these things. And this is a way they can avoid being responsible for it. Interesting thought. Uh, And, you know, responsibility is a key factor it matters who's at fault like when your smart tv can get hacked by just doing its job and sending a signal to you who's responsible yeah Yeah, because you know it's almost it's going to be you're not going to be able to buy a dumb tv pretty soon because as the price comes down you know they're going to have apps embedded in them and even if you choose not to use them it's going to be there well they have demonstrated an exploit where they don't need where physical access is not required to your tv to pwn it basically you just need to get something close enough that broadcasts a signal a uh, a digital broadband signal that you can, that your tv can receive so imagine if you're in an apartment or you're in a uh, sub suburban type setting somebody can drive through with a car broadcasting that and you say you know you say, oh, well, big deal. It's only the TV. What does that do? Well, it gives you, it gives them control to the microphone and the TV and the camera in your house. And, you know, you're not thinking when you're talking about personal information to you that you don't want shared, you know, Hey honey, what, what's the bank password? I thought it was big Willie 17. It is, but we capitalize the B and the W. Okay. Well, boom, your TV's hacked. You don't know it. Now they know your bank password. So, and yeah, okay. I mean, I know that's an extreme example, but with the internet of things proliferating the way it is, once they're in one system, it becomes easy to jump systems. And then your smart house has become a house of horrors. Yeah, and the proof of concept code here is not necessarily causing your phone, your TV to spy on you, but it's a it's a breach into your um, network. And home networks have gotten pretty secure now, um, not through any action of the home user, but because now you know Wi-Fi uh, 
access points make it really hard to not put a password, for example. Um, right. Like, for example, my, my Google Wi-Fi, it's not an option. I cannot set up an unsecure network. And other things are moving in that direction. Uh, things that, you know, you, you get your AT&T comes with a crazy password that's uh, uh, put on the, the back of the unit with a, a label uh, maker uh, strip. And most people don't bother to change that. They log into it once and they're good. So uh, home networks are getting pretty hard to attack. So you go for the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest surface. And this, driving around in a rich guy's neighborhood with a, a TV transmitter in the back of your truck that you could build for a couple hundred dollars would be enough to exploit this device. Um, you know, for example, you know, take a TiVo, uh, for example, connected to a digital antenna. Um, it's scanning radio waves all the time, even the channels you're not on. Uh, so the, you know, this, this, uh, smart TV might be doing the same thing. And so now they have an end to your network. Uh, and that's what makes it scary to me. Not that the TV has any power to spy on you, but that it's a shoehorn into what's a, already a fairly secure environment. And now, you know, Bob's your uncle, you can do whatever you want. Scary stuff, uh, but also ingenious hats off to the people who came up with this. This is smart stuff. Um, I just wish you were working for the good side, but well, I guess maybe you are cause you, you demonstrated it publicly. But you know, if if one person thought of this, right, somebody else we, did too. Yeah. How do we know it's not already being exploited? And you know, whenever you're, you know, what was it from Cheers? They they dance naked in front of the lava lamp in the living room. You know, now somebody's got pictures of you, and when you're famous, here comes the the blackmail emails. So that's a good point. Smart is not always what it's cracked up to be. Is that, is yeah. that how it works well, with it's, TVs? It's what we've talked about all the time. The The manufacturer is just, uh, we need another checkbox uh, on the, the labeling. You know, the packaging needs another feature. Uh, so let's just throw this in there and we won't really even ask the question, is it secure? Um, this is a marketing thing, not a security thing. Uh, I think it should be, at this point, people should consider it mandatory uh, to for every company that designs anything with a network to ha- to employ security professionals and run everything by them, that that seems to me to be. I'm not saying we should be a law. It seems to be just good corporate corporate uh, uh, governance at this point to have every project go through your security experts. But clearly, that doesn't happen. People are trying oh. to get out the door as quickly as possible, and they don't oh. even run it by anybody who knows something. You can hire a security expert. But in order to do that, you got to say goodbye to the cappuccino machine in the executive washroom. So it's not going to happen because that's going to cost money. And it's not going to cost money that drives up the price of the product. It's going to cost money in terms of bonuses and, you know, stock options that the people who don't do any work, but overregulate the people who do work. It's going to cut into their money hiring somebody to put out a better product. I, I don't quite have the same uh, as dark a view of that. I think it's more the line, along the lines of we're already paying lawyers. Why pay a security guy? Uh, you know, yeah. The, here's, what, here's my position. When it comes to computers and vulnerabilities and security and smarts, the last thing in the world I ever want to do is have my lawyer be my security professional. Good point. <laughs> They're useless. They don't know anything about this technology. The only person who does is the security guy. So if he's a you know on the he's a white hat or he's a black hat hacker, um, 
that's the risks you take. If he's smart enough in the first place, you can only hope that by, uh, I don't know, by incenting or by making it difficult for him to go to the dark side, him or he or she, that they choose to stay on the right side of the law. But I don't know. I mean, everything's all so blurry these days. Well, you know, here's another, uh, moving on to the next story, a guy who is on the right side of the law, uh, Tavis Ormandy, a well-known security researcher, has contacted LastPass, my um, um, password manager of choice, and shown them uh, exploit code that he's been able to find. He has not released it publicly. He's given them 90 days to respond because he feels that this is something that's going to take a long time and, uh, and uh, serious effort. It's a, a quote, he says, it's a major architectural problem. Uh, they have 90 days, so no need to scramble. Uh, but at the end of 90 days, if they don't do anything, he's going to release this publicly. Um, I trust LastPass. I trust their their uh, uh, track record, I should say. Uh, I don't know that I trust them anymore. This will tell me. Uh, but they've had a track record of doing stuff right. Uh, but this is, this is a big deal. Uh, I have touted LastPass as the greatest tool because I literally don't know my passwords. I don't know them. I, I hit the generate button. It spits out some gibberish. And the next time I go to that website, I say, hey, LastPass, what's the password of this website? Uh, and it does it. And it's a beautiful thing. But it's also the keys to the kingdom there. And... Um, Bad things could happen if, uh, you know, if Tavis Ormady found this, like Seth said earlier, somebody may already know about it too. And here's a, I want to read this one little paragraph from the article. The vulnerability is the third one he has privately reported to LastPass this month. Okay, I'm just going to read that one sentence. So that's the third <laughs> one he's found this month. So this is your gateway to who you are on the internet is being guarded by this organization and he's found three in the past month. Now, Hey, maybe he didn't find any in the two years he's been banging on it before that. This article doesn't say how long he's been researching it, but you know, security is very important. And even if you make the decision, I'm not going to remember my passwords. I'm going to give them off to LastPass. There are still things you can further do to, mitigate some of these vulnerabilities just because you hand off security to some other organization or program or anything doesn't mean you get to forget thinking about security. Security is still your job as a citizen of the internet, even if, you know, um, Norton does my security, Google filters, my spam, whatever you still need to know, okay, this is maybe a weird type email. I'm not going to click on that link, uh, you know, or security is still important. Even if you've farmed subsections of it out, I, I want to, I want to say that again, because that was, that was wise and people need to hear it. Security is your job as a citizen of the internet. Trademark Seth Anderson. That that is a powerful statement. Security. I, I was just railing about the fact that uh, that the hardware manufacturers didn't run this stuff through a security guy. That's their job, but it's also my job. Security is your job as a citizen of the internet. Good one, Seth. Yeah, and you know, it just I have to bring it back to political because this show has a lot of political undertones. It's much in the same way that if you have children. It's your responsibility to educate them, even if you send them off to a school. So you can't 
check out and just say, come back to me when you're 18 and we'll have a conversation. You know, you can't give security away. You can't give this other stuff away and say, well, I'm letting them manage that for me. You know, how many rich people lost their fortunes because they didn't even know how much money they had in their bank. And then pretty soon they didn't have any money in their bank because their accountant siphoned it off. You know, does it have our most accountants trustworthy? Yes. But are all of them? No, you need to know whatever you're doing you need to know enough to check on who's doing it for you. So that's my little conspiracy rant thrown in because I can't just leave it at a good statement. Miles, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree with, I agree entirely. Um, we, we outsource inappropriate things. We give up power that we, we should have that comes with responsibility to third parties without thinking about it. Um, there was a, I mean, you know, it's like the pendulums keep swinging from one extreme to another. About 10, 15 years ago, probably 10 years ago, there was a book by a guy out of San Francisco called, uh, by the name of Tim, Tim Ferriss called The 4-Hour Workweek. It's very, very popular. And its mission was to try to tell people that you only needed to work for four hours to achieve it, it, as a business owner to achieve what most people do in 40, 50, or 60 by outsourcing things out to other people who will do all the work. And I looked at that and I thought, either I'm just a dinosaur here or I'm not getting it, or this is wrong. And yeah, it's wrong. You know what? You don't outsource your life to a third party if you really care about your life. I mean, maybe if you're on a, a gurney in a hospital, yeah, okay, you've outsourced it to the doctors and nurses and facility because you have no choice in the matter. But if you have choice in the matter, you take some ownership of this stuff. Um, and so, yeah, LastPass, well, you know, they're, they're part and parcel of just the whole outsourcing mentality and we need socially to start realizing that we have to put restraint on this and you are responsible for things yourself. So deal with it. Anyway, enough said. I, I maintain, and I have for a long time, that we will look back someday on the password with the uh, uh, head-shaking nostalgia that we look back on the CB radio of the 70s. We're going to look back and say, can you believe we used to do passwords? Um, it, it can't come soon enough. Uh, you know, and, and to go back to what Seth was talking about with the uh, – being responsible and, and, and taking responsibility for your own actions. You know, sometimes you don't want to throw out a thing for ideological purposes because it might be a good thing. And this, this thing that Trump has done, he came in and promised to basically undo everything Obama had done. And this house vote was undoing a pretty good thing, uh, basically. So, uh, long and short of it, uh, during the Obama era, uh, a block was put on uh, major uh, ISPs of selling your uh, customer data, and the House voted to roll that back. Now, there's been all sorts of uh, ch skies falling, chicken little stuff, saying the 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 world now knows all your your browsing history and all your cookies and all that. Let's let's just back the boss up a little bit. Um, the the ISPs were only prevented from doing this in the last few years. So it's not like it's suddenly 
uh, you're vulnerable to things you weren't vulnerable to before. But this is a case where just because it was under a presidency presidency that you didn't like, it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, and it's only been like the last less than a year, I think, that it's actually been that way. But yeah, so, and there's, you can go online and uh, I didn't link to this particular article, but there's one article that tells you um, everyone that voted for this and how much money they have received from the telecommunications industry. Some of it's quite a lot. Others is very little. And of course, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, but you know, it's amazing how, more often than not, the side that gives the most money is the side whose vote wins. So, yeah, this is, you know, I'm I'm very much against the vast majority of Obama's policies because he's from a liberal, the government is your provision, and I'm from a conservative, you need to be your own provision. And so, fundamentally, we're at odds um, ideologically. But this particular policy is good, I think, because... It's, and again, you know, it's not earth shaking and there's other ways to figure out what websites you visit, but it's just privacy. It's, it's like, you know, I, I hate it when people come try to take from me what I would give if you would ask. The fact that you tried to take it means I hate you. Whereas if you just want to come up and ask, I would have given you that and more. And so it's more of a, you know, it's not secure. There is some security that could be involved in it, but it's more privacy and people just, you know, I want, you know, it's my house. It's my connection to the internet. I I wasn't given a free connection. Hey, if it's a free connection, they got to make money somehow. I understand that, but I pay money to connect to the internet. I should be entitled to a certain amount of anonymity because of that and you know i understand that's the minority report and because i feel that way this other way is destined to win out but you know i just i hate it so just on a not so much you know hey you go into private mode yes it doesn't store on your computer but guess what the isp stored everything you know what do you what's your choice now you're going to get a vpn well you know then guess what the vpn company stores it all so um it's just depending on you, who do you trust? Well, obviously we can't trust the ISPs anymore because the floodgates are back opened before they ever really got closed. And so the, the Republic, this passed down uh, party lines, Republicans voted for it. Uh, Democrats voted against it. Um, and the Republicans in mind, Republican mindset is uh, government regulation is a bad thing and government shouldn't be involved in telling ISPs what they can do. You know, on the surface of it, that's a sentiment I could get behind. But they're also in tacit in that, going back to Seth's uh, statement earlier, as a citizen of the Internet, you have certain responsibilities. ISPs are major citizens of the Internet. They have responsibilities to behave well. And when they don't, somebody has to, you know, shake a big stick at them. Uh, and again, I, I've twice now in this podcast advocated for big government um, I need to go check my temperature. Uh, but I really think that this is a case of, of um, letting the market work itself out has proven to be ineffective. So something well, needs to happen. But the reason why, okay, let me ask you a question. In your region, how many options do you have for internet that you would be willing to pay money and sign up for your house? Um, I have one. Okay. Seth, how many you got? I have one. Okay. And I have two. 
and that we have Cox and CenturyLink. So you you tell me that if there was a competitive true free market out there where you had had six to choose from, that one of those companies would stand up and say, tell you what, I know there was this regulation thing about this privacy thing, but we're going to do what's right for the consumer, a la we want to sell more stuff. And we're not going to keep that data and we'll be, you know, transparent about it and we don't care. So come to us because we're the good guys and we're cheaper and blah, blah, blah. That's free market. Yep. But there is no free market. There's one provider or a maximum two. So if that's the case, you can't have this, this premise of government should step out of regulation and everything should be left to the free market. Face it, people, there's no free market. So what are you going to do? Is there a free market of freeways on the road you can choose? No. There's one freeway. You get on it. And guess who manages that freeway? The government. Right? It's the same with the internet. It's just a digital freeway. So you can't, you can't not be responsible for managing it. You have to manage it. So manage it properly and manage it so that we, the people, don't get screwed over it. It's that simple. Yeah. And the problem is, Mark, you're advocating for big government. Big government created this problem. That's They're true. not called monopolies because monopolies are illegal. But when governments divide up sections of their district and, you know, accept bids for who gets to provide services there and, oh, you lost the bid, you can't come in. Okay. Who created the problem? The government. If the government's going to create the problem where I don't have a choice, oh, yeah, oh, we could all switch to HughesNet. Dear Lord, I'd shoot myself <laughs> first. But, you know, the government created this mess. It's the government's responsibility to keep the mess at least non-toxic. Now, just to be pedantic, man, monopolies are not illegal in the U.S. Abusing a, mon a monopolistic position is illegal in the U.S., Right, but when the position is granted by the government, yeah. So, um, like in in my address, you type in my address uh, into uh, websites that that specify or that specialize in finding ISPs. Uh, my choices are satellite, dial-up, or Comcast. Those are my choices. Nobody else runs copper or fiber to my address. Period. Um. That's that is uh, there's only one way that could happen because in this free market, if it were a true free market, there would people be people competing for my business because I pay a big chunk of money every month uh, to to have broadband and, and I actually have real broadband, but I pay through the nose for it and I don't care who I pay that. to. Well, that's not true. Uh, I, I would like to have some choice as to who I pay that to, but I don't because as we've talked about on the show many times, the government divvied up um the the territories and said you get these zip codes and you get those zip codes and there the twain shall meet yeah and you know okay you live in a very densely populated area okay i live in a very sparsely populated area so i understand i'm not going to that's one of the concessions i make hey i don't give as many choices because i can go out and pee on my porch if i want to you know you the police would be called if you did that so you know i have other advantages living in the country that people living in the city don't my lack of choice and lack of the highest speeds is a disadvantage so i don't i had a point and it was going to be glorious but i forgot it <laughs> in the talking so sorry
No, but this is not theoretical as well. This is actually real. I got this interesting little thing going on. We have uh, a cable provider, which I have internet to our house, and uh, I have a business-level connection. So I pay a premium for that. I pay quite a lot of money for it. Um, but, you know, my business is running stuff that runs in data centers, so I need a fast connection to be able to do my job. So it's all justified. Well, it was fine for a while, and then as of maybe – I'm going to say October, November last year, if I make a connection uh, between my house to our data center using a VPN, I was seeing that my, uh, my data transfer rate for the same bits of data on a uh, 100 megabit per second connection was slowed down to almost 100K a second speed. And I... It's just started happening. It was working fine. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what's going on here? Why? And I've got to transfer, like, you know, big server backup images and stuff between some. So I'm, I'm really freaking out about this. Um, so I called the provider and they, they pointed me to a, 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 a news bulletin or a, some article they published that said something along the lines of if you use a VPN on their network, you have to tell them. Because they're using some error correction technology from Yahoo that slows it down. It's like, look, I'm sorry, buddy. I didn't get, I, I mean, I, I didn't just walk out of the forest today so, you, you know, that you can just tell me this stuff and I'm going to believe you. That's a load of crap. Come they put on. you on a watch list. They wanted to make you call so they could put you on the watch list for kitty porn because you're running a VPN. Yeah. And the way to do that is to cut you two orders of magnitude. That gets your attention really fast. Oh, uh, no, 10 orders of magnitude because, I mean, it went from having a 1.1 megabit you know, speed to 100K just because they can. So, you know, at least, look, don't treat me like an idiot. Be, be up front and say, if you're running a VPN, you're speed's going to be throttled so okay fine whatever and then i'll do it remotely with a you know vps somewhere on somebody else's network but please don't treat me like an idiot like this but this is the problem that you have where you've got one choice well and the the your problem was you talk to level one script kitty script reader who doesn't yeah. know anything and you know, not only their job, but three positions above their job. And, you know, poor, poor people that, you know, I'm sorry. You're, you're right. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it, but it's not, it's not right for them to treat us all like we don't know what we're doing and we're idiots Right. That's just not right. That's or that just, you will believe such a line of BS. Yeah. Yeah. Give me the common courtesy to tell me the technical reason about it. And if I say, look, I'm sorry, I don't understand that, then dumb it down. That's fine. Right. But if you want to dumb it down from the start and pretend that there is no technical reason, then you're just lying. Yeah. Period. You know, I, I've, I've got to tell this story because it ties in greatly. And I've probably told it many times before. But, okay, I was helping a friend of mine set up their DSL connection home and you know of course you call and you talk to the level one person have you tried turning the cable around and of course the reason you do that is to make sure it was you nobody's going to plug it out and plug it back in but they'll turn it around have you turned it off turn it back on blah 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 all this kind of stuff finally i convinced them that i know more than they did they reached in the their script so they transferred me to level two 
And the level two guy started with the exact same script. Have you tried, you know, turning the cable around? And I said, hey, do you know so-and-so? He started there about three months ago. And he goes, yeah, he's sitting right beside me. I said, tell him I said hi. And he goes, uh, oh, hold on a second. Oh, I'm sorry. We hadn't built that connection yet. Give us 30 minutes and then it'll start working. So, you know, how long would I have had to repeat that same process before somebody took the time to look and see Oh, it was our mess up, but you have to first prove to the company that you're smarter than them and then show them it was their fault. And unfortunately that happens far too often in our country. I usually start the conversation with, I was a network administrator for 20 years. Can we skip the the simple stuff? A third of the time that works. Two thirds of the time it doesn't. Um, yeah. Sometimes they just say, all right, let me, let me escalate you to level two or three. Uh, but most of the time it's no, we have to do this first. Yeah, I've I've had that same experience. The first thing I've said is, uh, "Hi, this isn't working. Can you clear up catch, please?" It's like they go, "What?" I'm like, <laughs> "Just clear the up cache. That's all you got to do." Uh, okay, somebody does it and it starts working. It's like, "Thank you, bye bye." <laughs> <laughs> Can you make a note on my file that I am not an idiot, please? Yeah. I I I had a similar experience to yours. I knew the the uh, not the owner, but the manager of the company. And uh, I, when I started getting the runaround, I was like, can I just talk to Lance, please? <laughs> it, was, it was like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, Lance, I, I know he's there. He's always there. I, in fact, I just texted him like five minutes ago. Can I talk to Lance, please? Um, and that's great when you can do that, but it doesn't always work. Um, all right. That's, that's, uh, that's our new story. Lots of uh, disturbing and frightening news, but hopefully some entertaining discussion around disturbing and frightening um, that's our goal to frighten you and entertain you simultaneously. Um, so Seth, tell us what happened this week in history. Okay. We're going way, way, way back to April the 3rd, 1617 Scottish mathematician, John Napier died this week in history. He was a Scottish mathematician, most famous for inventing logarithms and an early calculating device called Napier's Bones, and he died at the age of 67. Napier's Bones consisted of multiplication tables inscribed in strips of wood or bone, making for quick calculations. They were called bones because of the material used to make the better quality versions was bone or ivory. His logarithmic system provided the basis for the invention of the slide rule around the same time, and logarithms were the principal means by which calculation was performed until the advent of the digital computer. And he was born in Scotland in 1550. He died this week in history. Without the slide rule and Napier's bones, you wouldn't be able to have a little fitness tracker telling you you need to get up and move around. My granddad used to use a slide rule. I used to watch him. Uh, he'd be, he was a woodworker. Uh, he was an all around uh, maker, but he'd be out in the shop calculating what he needed to, to measure, to cut, whatever, with a slide rule. And it was like this, this mystical thing for me, this magic stick that somehow gave him the answers. Um, but, you know, to think of, uh, about the fact that, that that technology is 500 years old, wow. You know, and that's, you know, we talk about how great computers are, but you need to know the underlying thing. I remember back in high school, I was the last person in my class to have a calculator. Everybody else had one. And because 
I was competitive. I wanted to be able to be as fast as him. So I learned how to do it on pencil and paper and, you know, shorthand multiplication, all that kind of stuff. And I could do it with a pencil and paper as fast as other people could with a computer. So just because you have a tool, if you understand the tools you're working with, imagine how much greater you could be in whatever your profession is. I watched my 14-year-old daughter punch into her calculator two times three the other day. I went off on her. It's like, that is the dumbest thing you've ever, I've ever seen you do. Why would you even need, it's like that. You are, I, I understand calculator dependence is a reality, but two times three, really? And her response was, you know, I, I just didn't want to think about it. It took more effort to type in two times three equals than to, to remember your basic second grade multiplication tables. Anyway, um, it just really makes me mad. And and I'm raising, uh, apparently, one of those children who doesn't want to think ever about anything. They just want the machines to do it for them. I'm sure somewhere in, uh, you know, roughly um, 1561, there was a parent complaining about the fact that their child couldn't do math without a slide rule and saying, you really should be able to do this on your own. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> all right this is the part of the show where i tell you how you can contact us feedback to us let us know what you think go to elementop.com click the contact us button at the top of the page answer the world's hardest captcha fill out the web form there and that will uh send an email that gets priority in my inbox that is the best way to make your uh uh, comments known. You could also call 559-IAM-OP. Leave us a, a message on our Google voicemail. I won't answer that. I never answer that. Uh, but it will uh, email me and let me know that you've left a message there. And we'll play that on the show. Or you can send an email directly to geekrant at elementop.com. Uh, and that goes to all three of us, unless you think I am filtering mail to the other guys. Um, we li- like to know what you think about any of these things. Uh, you know, uh, uh, is it is it a cold cold day in hell because I twice advocated for uh, big government? Um, let us know what you think. And of course, the uh, the call out for podcasts is still there. I would love to be able to make this a regular theme uh, for the next you know for all of 2017. I list four or five new podcasts from our listeners. That'd be cool. Um, so let us know what you think. Now, Seth, tell us what you have to lower my productivity, thus making you seem like a better hiring option. Okay, this. This has a couple of ways it could work. This could very well lower your productivity, or this could, you know, be subtle hints that a management could give to somebody. Um, <laughs> arbitraryawards.com. So you go there and it's some random award. Creepiest Best stare. mullet Photoshop job. Yeah. Creepiest stare <laughs> while at a urinal. And you can put your name in and print them out. So, you know, it randomly came up on me, longest fart inside an enclosed car. So I promptly printed that out as a PDF, converted it to a JPEG, and posted that puppy on Facebook. <laughs> so just because that's the kind of guy I am. So, you know, this site, it's fun, and you could I could see where you could become addicted to this, thus lowering your productivity and your boss letting you go because they used up their paper budget for the year in February. And, you know, on your way out the door, send me an email so I can forward my resume. This is something I could give to a couple of people at my office right now. Most confusing use of the phrase win-win situation. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. This is awesome, Seth. I I love. I look forward every week to your sh- show closing spectacular, and this is great. 
Uh, longest shock from an electric dog collar. <laughs> oh, most convincing Nicolas Cage body double. <laughs> There's some good ones here. Most awkward elevator companion. Oh, I, I, elevators are my favorite. I'm that guy. I'm the most awkward elevator companion because I don't understand why the monastic vow of silence suddenly ap- applies the moment the elevator doors close. You can have five people in, engaged in a great conversation. They step in an elevator. Nobody says a word. And of course, <laughs> me um, not being able to let a moment like that go by, I point it out and say, were you saying something about this guy over here in the corner that you didn't want him to hear? Why did you stop talking? Uh, what's so interesting about you that these people didn't want to stop, uh, didn't want to hear you uh, talk about uh, stuff? Anyway, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the most annoying elevator guy. I also, I'm claustrophobic, so I have a six-person limit. If, there's, if I'm the six-person, okay, the moment somebody else gets on, I get off. I will stop the elevator and get off. I can't be in an elevator with more than six people in it. I'm an annoying elevator companion. <laughs> Anything either of you would like to confess before we say goodnight? No, no, no. I'll plead the fifth. <laughs> yeah, All right, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us. Uh, you, the listener, we appreciate you uh, being with us low this hour and a half or so, um, which is a short show, sadly. Uh, we uh, look forward to seeing you next week because that's it for this episode of The Geek Grants. <laughs>